The passage that I got today that I want to talk about, it's really fantastic. It contains no commands, or actually one command, maybe. It contains no direct theological content. It's basically house cleaning. So Matt definitely picked the right passage for me to come up here and, uh, and uh, not know what to talk about. Um, the good news is it's scripture, so I'm not worried. We're going to find something worthwhile in here. One of the difficulties of talking about this specific passage in Philippians is that the text is heavily epistolary. By that I mean it's a letter. It's, it's a lot of letter stuff. It's like when you send an email to a friend and, you know, the third paragraph, like, oh, by the way, I talked to Renee about that thing. I think she'll send it in the mail tomorrow. What are they talking about? You don't know. Imagine, let's play a thought experiment here. If some archaeologist finds one of y'all's texts 500 years from now, on some Saturday this fall, I'm talking to the guys here, you text your buddy, I'm stocked up and ready, 20-pound rack, 12-pack, green and yellow everything. Now, you're probably getting beers and meat for a Ducks game, but this archaeologist will be like, is that a password? I mean, they won't know what it is. Um, so there's a, an ambiguity here in Philippians 2. Not totally clear what's going on. Um, just uh, on Saturday, actually, I let my son, who's three and a half, watch The Empire Strikes Back. He hasn't seen any Star Wars movie. Yeah, that's a clap, come on. <laughs> he hasn't seen any of the other Star Wars movies, but he's three and a half, so right now he's still like looking for who Darth Vader is and when he's gonna be back on the screen. So I figured he could just watch Empire, it will be fine. This is kind of what we're doing here. We're hopping to the middle of a conversation we don't know a lot about. But the good news is that this is scripture. And so I think we can find living waters here, living waters in the desert of Philippians 2. So let's read it real quick. Verse 19 is where we pick up. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Again, this passage has no theological arguments. No new doctrine. This is house cleaning, church maintenance. It's banal, commonplace, boring. Why doesn't Paul give us more details here? Where's my nice, easy life you know, application point I can put on a mug? We can think like this whenever we hit something hard in Scripture. I do this. I don't know about you guys. Maybe don't raise your hands. When you're in like some battle in First Kings and you're like, okay, cool. I guess that sucks if you died there. I mean, like, what do we do with some of these passages? You're in Chronicles or you're in Leviticus. Maybe you're in the genealogy in Matthew. What do we do with it? But this is the word of God. James 1.21 tells us, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, 
which is able to save your souls. Just like we receive Christ humbly in our hearts, we receive Scripture with humility. We don't challenge or argue with Scripture. Instead, we accept and examine and honor it because the Lord gave it to us with the foreknowledge it would be just what we need. Are you suffering right now? Are you limping in your faith walk? Do you not really know if you have any faith? This passage will be, I believe, an encouragement for us because in the desert of Philippians 2, 19 to 30, we can see that the Holy Spirit has, been, has supernaturally empowered regular people like you and me to undertake God's holy work. You and I can take part in the building of God's eternal kingdom through brotherly love for each other, through daily suffering, through living in joy. All those things will let us take part in the holy and amazing work that God is doing. Let's pray and get into the passage. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would speak strongly and clearly through me. God, I pray that we would find reservoirs of deep living water in this passage. God, I pray that we, our hearts would be gladdened, we'd be heartened, we'd be encouraged to see that regular people that screw up and don't love their wives well enough, regular people that lost their job, regular people that just aren't reading their scriptures like they need to, regular people like that can be transformed into amazing tools of your glory. Will we see that and be encouraged to know that it's not too late? You can make us warriors in the faith because of the power of the Holy Spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at the context a little bit to understand sort of what's going on. First off, who is Timothy? We know from Acts 16 that Timothy is born in Lystra, which is in modern-day Turkey, and he's from an interesting family. His mom is Jewish and his dad is Greek, so he grows up uncircumcised, which is another way of saying he does not grow up in the faith. He's not reading the scriptures. He doesn't grow up in a good Jewish family. He grows up like a pagan, an unbeliever. When he meets Paul, this is 2 Timothy 1 to 5, um, Paul says that he's a Christian. We don't know if Paul arrives and then Timothy converts. It could be that Timothy becomes a Christian right before Paul gets to Lystra. We just don't know the answer to that. But in any case, what happens in Timothy's life is his grandmother Lois gets saved, and then his mother Eunice, and then Timothy. So I think that tells us something interesting. Does Timothy grow up in a family with a good, God-loving dad who shows him how to be a, man, a, a godly man? No, he's got no context for that. He's got no framework for that. So Timothy grows up trying to figure out what it means to lead, to lead people in following Jesus. He doesn't grow up knowing that. But when he and Paul meet, they hit it off right away. Timothy is Paul's closest friend and confidant all throughout his ministry. So Timothy's a really important man coming from nowhere, from a pagan background. But Timothy will be the anchor point of all of Paul's ministry. How about Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus is, is a little mysterious, actually. Um, he is only found in the book of Philippians. He's only mentioned in three verses. So Epaphroditus is very much kind of enigmatic. We don't really know a whole lot about him. We know he's from Philippi, but we don't know a lot about him in part because of his name. Epaphroditus um, could be related to the name Epaphras. It might be a shortened, like, is Epaphras a nickname for Epaphroditus? We don't know. 
But the problem is that, that Epaphras is kind of like John. It's a name all throughout the Greek world. So even in the other places in Scripture where we see an Epaphras, it might be Epaphroditus, it might be someone else entirely. So when I tell you we don't know anything about Epaphras, we really know nothing except that this one book mentions him you know, two times. Maybe he's mentioned, I think it's in Corinthians or Colossians. We just don't know much. All we know is that his name Epaphroditus is actually from the Greek god Aphrodite who is the goddess of luck and beauty. I'm going to actually come back to that because Paul, Paul likes to pun sometimes in Scripture. Like in, a, in a Philemon, he'll talk about Onesimus, whose name means handy, and he says, hey, he was useful to me. So Paul likes to make like little Greek puns when he can. So here in Epaphroditus, I'm going to come back to, to luck, which actually, and Paul will turn this into a picture of God's sovereignty. So don't lose hold of that. In any case, Epaphroditus is this guy we don't know a lot about, we know by the end of the book of Philippians 4.18, Paul says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So it looks like Epaphroditus got sent to Paul, who's in jail right now in Rome, probably got sent with money you know, to, to, to go to Paul and give him the, the, the cash he needs to survive in jail. If you're in jail in Greco-Roman times, you don't get fed generally. You have to rely on other people to bring you food. So this is a way of keeping Paul alive. Um, this is actually a really scary mission that he gives Epaphroditus because he's carrying cash. This is the Roman world. There aren't credit cards, right? So if you want to take money to someone, you carry a bag of money. Now, I don't know how you guys feel about carrying cash anymore. I certainly don't really do it. But when I was uh, about 17, I bought for uh, exactly one summer a 1985 um, Chevy Camaro. And it was my world. It was the worst car I've ever owned. This car was so bent that to drive it straight, you had to turn at a 90-degree angle the whole time. And so, like, one, one wheel would go straight, and the other would, like, go, like, this direction and rub really fun. It was, it was bad. Also, the brakes not one time. I had to stop with the e-brake for about two weeks. It was a, not a good car. So when I went to buy this thing, I had to take $900 with me, which when you're 17 is, like, you know, it's everything. So I put like $200 in one shoe, $150 in another. I like in different places on my body in case I got mugged. You could be like, oh, I only brought $400 because I was going to try to lowball you. You know, I figured that would be a way to not get robbed. I don't know. It made sense at the time. 17 year right? Anyways, this is Epaphroditus. He's being sent with cash in the Roman world, which doesn't exactly have regular police forces. It's not exactly the most secure place in the world. Sent all the way to Rome to give this money to cash. So he's taking a risk here. Paul says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so I too may be cheered by news of you. It seems like, I'm drawing from Alistair Begg here, it seems like Epaphroditus gets sent from Philippi to help out Timothy with that money to help support him, because the Philippians may be having a disagreement in the body. And if they can't get Paul to settle some doctrinal debate, they're like, well, let's get Timothy. Timothy's his right-hand man. He can settle whatever dispute or debate we got going on. And Paul just punts. He's like, eh, I'll just send Epaphroditus right back to you guys. I'm going to keep Timothy here a little bit longer. Thanks, Paul. Cool. So Paul just sends Epaphroditus right back and keeps Timothy. Why? Well, for one thing, verse 20, Paul says, I have no one like Timothy, no one like him, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy is so close to Paul. This verse here, verse 20, when he says no one else like him, the Greek is more like, I don't know Greek, but I use Bible Hub, so you're welcome. He says twin-hearted or of one spirit is closer to the translation here. So in other words, Paul is saying is, Timothy totally gets me. That's why I need him here with me. 
He's in Rome. He could be executed at any point. So I think understandably, Paul is like, if I'm going to be killed, I need Timothy to take my last remarks, close out my ministry. I need to send the last letter to this church or, or to this person. I need Timothy here in case the worst happens. He says in first, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 16 to 17, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy. So Paul will often send Timothy out as, a, as an emissary to settle disputes. And in this case, he doesn't do that. Spilling my tea here. Verse 21, he says of Timothy, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting is he's been talking about Timothy, and Paul is shifting to talk about Epaphroditus. And I want us to notice this because I think uh, in our pantheon, in, kind of in our minds, we're like, okay, Jesus is great. You know, Peter's pretty good. Paul's up there. Timothy's right beneath him. Where's Epaphroditus in your kind of Christian pantheon? Is he at the top of the mountain? Epaphroditus is a nobody. So what I want us to notice here is that Paul is going to rep Timothy, or rep Epaphroditus. He's going to talk about how great Timothy is. Verse 21, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy and Epaphroditus are selfless leaders. The Scottish preacher Dominic Smart says, Timothy and Epaphroditus modeled Christian service by being, quote, putting Christ first in their lives, which meant other people were second, and they put themselves last. That's the godly service Timothy and Epaphroditus do. Verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he's served me in the gospel. The, the how as a son with a father, he's, he's kind of conjuring up an image of an artisan, maybe a first century uh, uh, a carpenter, let's say, you know, working with a plane in the woodshop. He's working with his father, learning how to do it at his father's hand. This is an image of great care and paternal interest in, in Timothy, almost like his son. I hope, verse 23, Paul says, I hope, therefore, to send him, Timothy, just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So Paul gives a long explanation. Here's why I'm not sending you Timothy. I need him here. He's too important. Verse 25, why am I going to send you Epaphroditus back? I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Paul says something totally amazing here. When he says, my brother, he's first off putting Epaphroditus on a status of almost equality with Paul. Paul, who's maybe one of the greatest Christians ever to live, one of the most faithful men in all of history. And he calls Epaphroditus, this nobody, who gets three mentions in the whole Bible, my brother. That should encourage us, I think. We're not important, special people, but we're the brother of Paul. Did you know that? Paul is our brother in the Spirit of Christ, the amazing Apostle Paul. Peter, they're our brothers in Jesus. He goes further. He says, fellow worker. So Epaphroditus is doing the same thing, Paul says, that I'm doing. He's accomplishing all the same ends for Jesus. This nobody is. Fellow soldier is kind of an interesting word. A fellow soldier, he actually doesn't use the word for foot soldier. He uses the, the word for military strategist. So he's actually, Paul's actually saying Epaphroditus is kind of the brains guy. He's here to plot out and figure out what we're going to do for the kingdom. So he's really representing Epaphroditus as an important guy, this nobody. My favorite is the word messenger. A, pes a messenger in Greek is apostolon, apostle. Can you imagine that? 
The Apostle Paul says of this nobody, he's an apostle. It's actually a, a, apostolon is your, so it's literally your apostle. So Paul is sending Epaphroditus back. Instead of saying, I'll send you Timothy who will fix your doctrine, he says, I'm going to send your apostle back and he'll do everything you need for you. Because isn't that what apostles do? They take the message of God to give the church life. That's actually what preaching is. Encouraging our spirits by scripture. So he sends Epaphroditus back with maybe the biggest word he could drop on him, apostle. He's your apostle. Do you pray for your church leadership? They are your apostles. He also says he's the minister to my need. Minister is from Lytorgos. Um, in, the, in the Roman world, there were a bunch of city-states. Uh, a lot of states that were basically ran independently. And wealthy men, if they liked their city, would basically spend their own cash out of their pockets to develop you know, libraries, to build you know, public buildings, bathhouses, um, basically ways to keep the city nice. You, know, you want a sports team? I'm making that up. You, know, you want something for your city? Some rich guy's got to spend for it. So he says that Epaphroditus is like a liturgos, out of his own pocket. He's finding what is needed to supply the needs of Philippi, to keep that city working, to keep that church functioning. So I want us to see that Epaphroditus is not a special person. And yet Paul calls him apostle. He calls him strategist that I'm working with. He calls him the minister who's taking care of every little thing your church needs. He's a worker just like me. Does that encourage you guys today? That just like Epaphroditus, we're not strong in the spirit. We're weak. We screw up all the time. And yet Paul says that we can be apostles at our church. We can help drive and encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 26. I'm dripping tea here. This is nice. Verse 26. Paul says, referring to Epaphroditus, For he has longing, been longing for you all, has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing here. I'll, I'll mention it. Um, ill in Greek is astheneo. John MacArthur argues, I, I think he might be right here, that weakness might be a first century code for oppression. Because in, in a letter to another church, you never know who's going to get that letter. So it could be that when Paul writes weakness, sometimes after he gets beat up, Paul will say, I was weak. You know, when I am weak, I am strong, that sort of thing. Sometimes he'll use weakness right after he's beat up or tortured for the faith. So MacArthur argues, maybe Paul is actually worried, that, um, the, worried about the Philippians going through um, oppression. Maybe they're being attacked for their faith, and so that, that ill might be in hint. We don't know for sure, but it could be the sickness or the ill could mean the oppression you're facing. Um, I want us to get this in verse 26, the way in which Epaphroditus loves his church. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. He's distressed for the church, verse 27. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So um, Paul's wor Paul is worried. Phil ch uh, the church at Philippi, I misspoke. The church at Philippi is worried about Epaphroditus, worried about his health, maybe, maybe worried about the oppression he's facing. But I want you to get that the, the, the passion here that Paul has, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul is not some sort of, you know, uh, I used, I've used the phrase earlier, but you guys heard the phrase frozen chosen. Paul is not rooting, well, God's in charge of everything, so I'm just not going to worry. Paul deeply loves Epaphroditus. The Philippians are worried about Epaphroditus. These are people in the first century church that love and care for each other deeply. 
They're really worried that Epaphroditus may not make it either because of illness or oppression. Again, we don't really know. They're really invested in this. I think that sometimes, again, I'll show you my cards. Um, I think that sometimes when we believe in God's sovereignty, that gives us an excuse to try to be stoic. Well, God's got it. He's in charge, so not a big deal. That is not the biblical picture of belief in God's sovereignty. Think about Jesus. Jesus weeps. Jesus is emotionally invested in his world. Does Jesus know that the Father's in charge of everything? Uh, maybe. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen because God's in charge, and yet he's deeply emotionally invested. That's what Paul is talking about here. Verse 27, when he says, um, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I have sorrow upon sorrow. The image there, sorrow upon sorrow, is waves. So hit by wave after wave of pain and difficulty. Paul can't imagine going on without Epaphroditus. But do you think Paul trusts absolutely in God's control? Of course he does. That's what Christian love should look like in the church. Even though we know God's in charge, we, we think of our brother who's sick. Is God in charge of that situation? Of course he is. But that doesn't mean we're going to be stoic and walk around, well, who knows, it's all in God's control. That's not a biblical response. Um, actually, Calvin has a good line on this. Calvin says regarding stoicism, stoicism, the idea that you shouldn't respond emotionally, you should keep back from being too emotional about things. Calvin says, Christian patience differs widely from the stubborn and fierce sternness of the stoic. For what excellence were there in patiently enduring the cross if there were in it no feelings of pain and bitterness? If when you're in a tough time, you, don't, you choose to kind of not feel it and be like, oh, God's in charge, not gonna, it's not going to affect me, you're saying the cross shouldn't hurt. The cross was devastating to Jesus. That's why it's beautiful. He took everything we deserve and transforms it into glory and our eternal hope in life. So stop minimizing your pain. Be okay with hurting. Jesus was, and Jesus saw. What does it say in Scripture? It says, he looked at the shame and forsook it. He's like, I don't need that. I know what's coming. That's how we respond to suffering. We don't try to not feel it. We look towards the glory that's coming. You follow me? So this is, I think, why Paul can, in verse 27, seem worried, and yet Paul's not in sin. Paul's not being a worrywart. Paul is saying, I deeply want my brother okay. But he, of course, trusts in the Lord's sovereignty, absolutely. Verse 28, referring to Epaphroditus again. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and I may be less anxious. Anxious. That's a godly anxiousness. I worry for you. I think that as, as people sometimes, we're very good about being anxious for ourselves and our concerns. Paul here is anxious for the feelings of the Philippian church. They're worried about Epaphroditus, and he's worried about them worrying about him. It's this cyclical relationship because of their emotions, their relationship to one another. Verse 29 is really interesting here. So receive him, referring to Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. This is the one command in the passage. In this case, he's saying to the Philippian church, when Epaphroditus comes back, you might think I kicked him to the curb. You sent him to go like, you know, 600 miles in the first century with a bunch of money. He didn't get mugged, so that's great. And you're sending him back to us. Thank you. And Paul says, receive him with joy and honor such men. So Paul sends Epaphroditus with his full blessing, with his full authority. Again, I, I think this is a lesson for us, guys. If you're having a hard time with something in your life, 
You don't need a special dispensation to solve it. If you're in a relationship right now that you shouldn't be in, there's temptations in your life sexually that you shouldn't be giving into, you don't need a special dispensation. You need the power of the Holy Spirit and Scripture to speak into your life. If you're not sure what to do with your job right now, you don't need a special dispensation. You need to pay attention to people around you that love you, that know Jesus, because they'll re lead you aright. They are your apostles. Do you follow me here? The power of the Holy Spirit in the church is not weird and magical. It's totally normal. Look at Paul's experience here. The Holy Spirit is driving him to send Epaphroditus with all the authority necessary to make that church work. The Holy Spirit gets the work of church done. You don't do it. I don't do the work of the church. The Holy Spirit accomplishes it. I'm hopping to a line here because I've been thinking about this the last couple days. What does Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? This is John 16. He says, John 16, 7, 15. He's telling the disciples, basically, I'm about ready to die. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What's one thing the Holy Spirit does? He convicts the world. Concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit's main function, guys, in your life is not to tell you, apply for this job, you're going to get it. That is not the main function of the Holy Spirit. The main function of the Holy Spirit is when you screw up to convict you and say, go back to Christ, seek salvation in his arms. That's what the Holy Spirit does in you. When you're having a hard time and you're depressed and, and the week's weighing on you because, I don't know, kids, it's finals or something, so I'm, I'm totally there. I'm like three weeks behind and all that stuff. Um, when that's weighing on you, the power of the Holy Spirit is you are fully my child. Everything that you need to do has been accomplished on the cross. That's the message of the Holy Spirit to you. If you're looking about, you know, again, I think a job opportunity, again, a bunch of you guys are close to graduating. <laughs> Man, I did this too when I was a young person. Which way should I go? Like, we, we, we want God to be this little, like, like you know, a, a magic eight ball to give us easy answers. That's not what the function of the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit shows us who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit is like the lights at a baseball game. When you're at the baseball game, the lights are on. Do you show up and say, oh, you won't believe the lighting system? Amazing. No one says that. You talk about the game you got to see the Holy Spirit in your life lights up how amazing Jesus' sacrifice is and lets you see how wondrous his salvation is. So stop looking for stupid little things from the Holy Spirit and look for the amazing panoply of goodness he gives us. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It says in verse 14, I'm still in John here, when the, uh, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. What does the Spirit do? He guides us into truth. For whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Everything that is Jesus is, think about that promise, everything that is Jesus is, is yours through the Holy Spirit. All the blessings that Jesus got for his totally holy life, for always following God, you can have those right now because they're made available through the Holy Spirit. The way that, that God the Father loves His Son, fully God, Jesus Christ, do you know that God loves you like He loves Jesus? 
that's what Scripture says. You're not like some, well, the adopted kid. You know, he's all right. That's not God's attitude towards us. God loves us with such passion. It's the passion he has for, through us, for us, rather, through Jesus. It's that same intense fatherly love. I'll give you another example. I, I, I know I'm kind of whinging on about the Holy Spirit, but this passage is all about the unseenness of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm reminded a couple, this is probably 25 years ago now, someone came to my dad's uh, uh, office. My dad is a pastor, was a pastor in, in uh, Renton, Washington. Came to his office and said, you know, he introduced himself, said, you know, I'm a prophet. Um, I really like to work here as a prophet. <laughs> my dad was like, oh, wow, how very interesting. You want to come here for the next four or five years and see how things go? And this guy was like, well, no, I have the gift of prophecy. I'm, I'm here to prophesy. My dad was like, okay, well, first you need to submit to the church and love it sacrificially. That guy left his office and didn't come back. If you think prophecy is about you, you do not understand what the Holy Spirit does. First, 1 Corinthians 12, 3 to 5. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. When you're having a hard day, when you're pissed off at, can I say pissed off? When you're really mad at traffic, you're really frustrated. If you want to honk at somebody or, or, or pull over and cut somebody off, instead you say, no, no, I'm not going to do it. In that moment, the Holy Spirit's giving you new life bubbling up from your heart. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, he goes on to say, there are different kinds of gift, but the same Spirit distributes them. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them. And in everyone, it is the same God at work. If you're a Timothy able to show up at a church and drop doctrinal bombs. Here's what the preaching is. Paul said so, shut up. That's, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. When Epaphroditus shows up with cash in his hand, hey, I almost got mugged about three times. Here's some money. How can I serve you? That's the power of the Holy Spirit. What we see in Philippians 2 is that God has empowered the church in the here and now constantly by the work of the Holy Spirit to do the work of the kingdom that cannot be stopped even by our own weaknesses, even by our sin. We can't get in the way of God's plan. Isn't that good news? If we could get in the way of God's plan, would we have done it by now? I would by like seven this morning. Like We're always getting in our own way trying to pursue holiness, but God's plan cannot be stopped. At the end of Job, I think it's Job 43, after God shows up and just lays Job out with these amazing verses about God's creation, Job says, I'd heard of you, but I'd never seen you. Now I know that no plan of yours can be thwarted. That's the excellence and sovereign majesty of our God, who's like him. He sets a plan for our church to proclaim the message of God, and we screw it up because we're sinners and fallen all the time because we spill tea on our notes and everything else. All the time we're messing up. But does his message ever not find the mark? It always hits what it needs to, always hits what he designs for it. I want to invite you outward to take pleasure and joy and encouragement that you are the apostles of Outward Church. You're nobody special, I'm nobody special, but the Holy Spirit is here to give us everything we need in Jesus Christ, and we have it right now as we have faith in Him. Don't despair, don't give in to difficulty. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who's what? The author and perfecter, isn't that a great verse? What if Jesus wrote it and didn't finish it? Have you ever thought about that? What if Jesus is like, um, I want Nick to be a good guy? All right, see what happens. Like, is, is that how God's sovereignty works? He's the author and perfecter. He's already accomplished everything. 
on the cross and in his resurrection for you, just step into what's waiting. The blessings and beauty of Jesus are yours. They're yours today. Let's be thankful and encouraged. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you that all the hard things have already been done. We don't bring a big list of good works. We don't bring a big wheelbarrow of goodness to you. Paul says that all we bring is our, our false righteousness. It's rags. It's, it's dirty clothes. God, we don't bring anything good before you. Instead, we receive the beauty and riches of Jesus. God, today, would you give us great joy, overflowing joy, knowing that in your sacrifice and resurrection, you supplied everything that this church needs, everything that we need as we follow you. God, but we have the ultimate hope, knowing that we are awaiting the final consummation of your mission, the final appearance of your kingdom in your second coming, when every enemy will be put under your feet, and at last we'll look and see the entire tapestry of your design, every thread right where it needs to be. God, would we love our brothers sacrificially? Would we, would, be, would we be good to our spouses? Would we take our jobs well? God, would we do those things not because we're under obligation, not because we're working for our salvation, but because you've accomplished everything and we need only receive. Thank you that you did it and that we receive totally undeserving, but totally blown away and thankful by who you are and what you've done. Truly, there is no God like you. In Jesus' name.